Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. It's been a few weeks since we've been in uh, Habakkuk, so let me give just a very, very brief overview. Chapter one begins with Habakkuk asking God how long he's gonna wait before bringing judgment upon the wayward people of Judah. And God answered Habakkuk by explaining that um, he's about to bring the needed judgment on Judah, and he's going to use the brutally wicked Babylonians as his instruments of judgment. Now this startled Habakkuk. It startled him because it seemed so severe. It made him wonder whether God intended to destroy the people of Judah. Habakkuk wondered how the Lord would fulfill his promises concerning the future of his people. Promises such as the one he made, that the Lord made when he said that David's seed would rule upon the throne forever. And Habakkuk was concerned that the Babylonians would get away with their wickedness. That they would escape justice and not have to bear the consequences of their sin. And so Habakkuk respectfully brought these concerns to the Lord, and then he said, I will watch to see what my God will say to me and and what I will answer when I am corrected. Chapter three is Habakkuk's answer when he was corrected. After the Lord brought Habakkuk to a proper understanding that the proud will perish in their sins and the just will live by their faith, Habakkuk responded to God with the prayer that's recorded in chapter three. And notice how this prayer begins. Habakkuk had just brought, uh, just been brought to a correct understanding of the Lord's righteous principles of judgment. And so he begins his prayer by expressing his agreement that the work of the Lord needs to continue. Look at verse two. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. The word revive has nothing to do with the type of activity that happens at modern day revival meetings. The Hebrew word here means to preserve something by keeping it alive. To preserve something by keeping it alive. And what is it that Habakkuk is praying would be preserved by keeping it alive? The Lord's work. More specifically, the Lord's work of judgment. Habakkuk is praying that the Lord's judgment will continue to be made known in the midst of the years, that is, in the present time as well as into the future. Now, don't forget, Habakkuk had been questioning whether the Lord is going to bring judgment upon Judah. And in a related way, he was questioning whether the Lord was going to bring judgment upon Babylon. But after hearing the Lord's answer to these questions, Habakkuk is brought into agreement with everything that the Lord had declared to him. So he prays, keep your work alive, O Lord. Do as you said you're going to do. And make it known in the midst of years. Make it so everybody sees your work being accomplished in our present day as well as into the future. That's, the pra- that's how he begins his prayer. And this is a, a positive indication that uh, when a person prays like this, that, that that person has a strong faith in the Lord. 
It's a positive indication to, uh, of a strong faith in the Lord when they can pray, anybody, any Christian can pray in agreement with the Lord's judgment, especially when that judgment is going to create hardship and suffering for the one who's offering the prayer. In other words, it was probably a lot easier for Habakkuk to pray for God's judgment on the Babylonians than it was to pray for God's judgment on Judah because Habakkuk was not part of the Babylonians. God could have brought severe judgment upon the Babylonians and that would have little to no effect upon Habakkuk's daily life, but not so with bringing judgment on Judah. Even though Habakkuk was innocent of the things that God was going to judge Judah for, the judgment that God was about to bring on Judah would significantly impact the quality of Habakkuk's daily life. Habakkuk is going to experience the devastation that God is bringing to Judah just as all the other Jews are going to experience that devastation. And while the scriptures don't tell us what happened to Habakkuk during the Babylonian invasion, uh, we assume that he was mistreated and abused, much like his contemporary prophet Jeremiah was. So for Habakkuk to begin his prayer this way indicates a strong faith in God. He's essentially saying, I'm willing to suffer through the Babylonian invasion because that's what's best for your people. And that's what's going to bring you, God, the most glory. And so continue with your work. Revive it. Keep it alive. Make it known in the midst of years. But Habakkuk has one more, one, uh, has one more thing to, to say on this point. Uh, you'll notice that he adds a plea at the end of verse two. Uh, after expressing, expressing his agreement with God's plan to bring judgment on Judah, Habakkuk adds an intercessory plea on behalf of Judah. He entreats the Lord, in wrath have mercy. <clears throat> in wrath have mercy. And take careful note of what Habakkuk is asking the Lord because this is the plea of a person who understands what it means to stand guilty before a merciful God. A lot of people think they understand what it means to stand guilty before a, an angry God. But what Habakkuk is demonstrating is his knowledge of what it means to stand guilty before a merciful God. Once again, Habakkuk wasn't person, personally guilty of the sins that God is going to judge Judah for, but the nation of Judah was guilty and so Habakkuk brings this plea to God on behalf of the nation of Judah. Take a moment to recognize the components of this plea. There are three. First, Habakkuk agrees that Judah is guilty before God. Second, he acknowledges that God's wrath is the appropriate response to Judah's guilt. And third, Habakkuk asks God for mercy. Now these three components comprise the biblical model of repentance. These three components are how every genuinely penitent person will confess his sins to the Lord. First, 
the genuinely penitent person begins by acknowledging his guilt to the Lord. Second, the genuinely penitent person knows that he deserves God's wrath. And so he doesn't try to argue with God about what the appropriate punishment might be. Rather, he agrees that God is perfectly right and just to punish sin with a full measure of his wrath. And then the third and final component is to entreat the Lord for his mercy. This is possible because the genuinely penitent person knows the attributes of God. He knows the attributes of God. He knows that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He knows the tender mercies and loving kindness of the Lord are from old. He knows the custom of the Lord is to look with mercy upon those who love his name. So the genuinely penitent person doesn't just acknowledge his guilt to God and agree that he deserves the full measure of God's wrath, but the genuinely penitent person pleads with God for mercy. You see, pleading for mercy is a righteous way to escape the consequences of your sin. In fact, it's the only way to escape the consequences of your sin. There are many, many unrighteous ways that people try to use to escape the consequences of their sin. As you frequently hear me say from this pulpit, uh, we must never try to deny our sin, act like it doesn't exist. We should never try to minimize our sin. We should never try to pretend that our sin is something other than what it is. Maybe just ignore it. Those are some of the unrighteous ways that people try to escape the consequences of their, of their sin. But that only adds sin to sin. It compounds the sinner's sin. But that's not what pleading for God's mercy does. Pleading for God's mercy is an admission of guilt. It says, I am guilty. I deserve God's wrath. But please, Lord, have mercy on me. Deal with me, not according to my sin, but according to your loving kindness. We see an example of this kind of plea for mercy, not only in Habakkuk, but also in Psalm 51. David begins a psalm by writing, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Notice that David isn't trying to persuade God that his transgressions are something less than what they really are. Rather, he's saying to the Lord, I am a transgressor. I stand guilty before you as a transgressor. The only way my transgressions can be blotted out is if you have mercy on me. So I'm pleading with you uh, for, for your loving kindness and your tender mercies to blot out my transgressions. Habakkuk is doing the same thing only on Judah's behalf. He's pleading for God to be merciful as he deals with Judah's transgressions. And so it is with every genuinely penitent sinner who seeks forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He stands before the Lord in the guilt of his own transgressions. He stands before the Lord knowing that he deserves the full measure of God's wrath. But then he falls to his knees as he calls upon the Lord to have mercy on him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the gospel promise recorded in Romans 10, 13, 
says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater comfort to your soul or assurance to your heart than knowing that you have salvation in Jesus Christ. This is the truth that's expressed in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. In fact, the Heidelberg puts it in even stronger terminology. Uh, It doesn't ask, what is your greatest comfort in life and death? It asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then it supplies the answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must work for the good of my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. The prophet Habakkuk agreed that salvation in the Lord is the only comfort in life and death. We know this because that's the point Habakkuk is making at the end of his prayer in chapter three. He knows that when the Babylonians invade, he's gonna suffer the loss of many precious things. And he knows that he's gonna experience significant difficulties and trials and hardships over the coming years, probably for the remainder of his earthly life. Yet Habakkuk says that he's still going to rejoice in the God of his salvation. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, though though the uh, labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, Habakkuk is describing the collapse of an agrarian, agrarian economy. He's describing a situation where there are no crops, no cattle, no food, no source of income, and there's nothing on the immediate horizon that would suggest that things are going to get better. He knows this is about to happen because God has told them him that this is about to happen. Yet Habakkuk says in verse 18 that even when the entire economy collapses, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. How can Habakkuk say this? Because his only comfort in life and death is knowing that he belongs to the God of his salvation. Once again, the emphasis is on the word only. Habakkuk's only comfort is knowing that he belongs to the God of his salvation. Because his comfort is not in the fig tree, he does not despair when the fig tree does not blossom. Because his comfort is not in the vines, he does not despair when there's no fruit on the vines. Because his comfort is not in the olive tree, he does not despair when the olive fails. Because his comfort is not in food, he does not despair when the fields don't produce. Because his comfort is not in the flocks, he does not despair when they are cut off. Because his comfort is not in the herd, he does not despair when the stalls are empty. 
Do you see the point that Habakkuk is making by going through these things, by describing the, the fall and collapse of this agrarian economy? It's the same point that the Heidelberg Catechism is making when it asks what your only comfort is in life and death. If Habakkuk had multiple comforts, then he would have reason to despair when one or more of those comforts were taken away. But what he's saying is that he has only one comfort in life and death. And that's the God of his salvation. And Habakkuk knows that the God of his salvation cannot be taken away. Uh, So even when everything else in the world is taken away from him, Habakkuk will continue to rejoice in what he has for all eternity, the God of his salvation. Is that your testimony, dear friends? Do you firmly believe that your only comfort in life and death is knowing that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? And is this the reason why you're able to rejoice in the God of your salvation even amidst significant trials and hardships? About 30 years ago, 30 years ago, I was introduced to the, the practice of choosing a life verse. If you're not familiar with this practice, uh, a life verse is a Bible verse that a person ascribes uh, to having some particular importance or meaning to their unique life. Um, for example, uh, as a professional boxer, Evander Holyfield, he has his life verse as Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right, that's his life verse, Evander, Evander Holyfield. And he was wearing that life verse on his boxing trunks the night he stepped in and defeated Mike Tyson. Well, 30 years ago, I decided that 1 Peter 3.15 would be my life verse. But sanctify the Lord, the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And the reason I chose that this verse, you know, 30 years ago is because it says, always be ready to give a defense. Um, the Greek word for defense is apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics. And apologetics was an important part of my life back then. And hence, I, uh, I chose this verse, First uh, Peter 3.15, as, as my life verse. Well, today, I read First Peter 3.15, and I see a, a different emphasis than I did 30 years ago. While it's true that I always need to be ready to give an apologetic, this verse is saying that my opportunities for giving an apologetic will happen when people ask me to explain the reason for the hope that's in me. Which means I not only need to possess a living hope in the triune God, but that hope needs to be displayed to the people around me. In other words, people need to see the hope that's in me. They need to observe it in my behavior and my attitude. And of course, we must not overlook the context of 1 Peter 3.15. Peter is writing about suffering. He's saying that people take notice of how you suffer. So when they see you suffering under various trials and hardships and they notice that you're still rejoicing in the God of your salvation, they're going to be curious about this. Uh, they're going to ask you to explain the reason for the hope that's in you. And then you'll have the opportunity to give an apologetic. 
But realize, and here's the point, these apologetic opportunities will only happen when people see you rejoicing in the most difficult times. These apologetic opportunities will only happen when people see you rejoicing in the most difficult times. Which brings us back to Habakkuk's statement in verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk must have had a lot of apologetic opportunities in his day. When the world was caving in around him, yet people looked at him and they saw him rejoicing in the God of his salvation, they must have asked him for the reason for the hope that was in him. And Habakkuk would have responded with something very similar to what we're reading in our sermon text. He would have explained that, this, that, that his only hope is in the God of his salvation. So when everything else is being destroyed and removed from his life, that doesn't cause him to despair. That doesn't cause him to give up hope. That doesn't send him into a tailspin because his security is in God and God alone. So when I asked you a few minutes ago whether your only comfort in life and death is knowing that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, let me suggest a consideration that you can use when answering this question. Consider how many apologetic opportunities you get. How often do people ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you? If it's true that your only comfort in life and death is the God of your salvation, then you're gonna handle hardships, frustrations, failures, and disappointments differently than a lot of other people handling those same things. Whereas a lot of other people will be driven to despair when bad things uh, begin to happen in their life, you won't be driven to despair. You won't be driven to despair because the God of your salvation, which is the singular object of your hope, remains secure. The God of your salvation remains secure, even amidst all the tragedies and and difficulties. He he doesn't change. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and all the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. His works are honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. One generation shall praise his works to another and shall declare his mighty acts. And so, no. You will not be driven to despair when your hope is placed in the God of your salvation alone. When the God of your salvation is your only comfort in life and death, hardships, frustrations, failures, and disappointments will not make you despair. Now let me add some clarifying remarks to what I just said because I want to make sure that there's no confusion on this point. To say that you will not be driven to despair does not mean that you will never grieve or that you will never lament or that you will never experience seasons of sorrow in your life. God designed you as an emotional creature, so you should not think it wrong or strange when you experience all the same sinless emotions that the Bible tells us Jesus experienced, right? Which means 
You should weep when your fellow Christians are weeping. And you should grieve when somebody close to you dies. And your spirit should be distressed when you contemplate God's eternal wrath against sinners. There's nothing wrong with these emotional responses. We know this because Jesus experienced those emotional responses. But when I say that you won't despair if your only hope is in the God of your salvation, I'm talking about something different than emotions. Despair is losing hope. It's more of a decision than it is an emotion. It's the decision to stop hoping. And one of the best biblical examples of despair is Judas Iscariot. He was overtaken by despair after he betrayed Jesus. That caused him to give up hope. Whenever people place their hope in anything other than the triune God, they're setting themselves up for despair. How so? Because all those things will eventually fail you. All those things, anything other than God will eventually fail you. Um, And when they do fail you, you're, you're gonna begin wondering whether there's anything that's really secure enough, whether there's anything that's really faithful enough to place your hope in. And when the cycle of hope and failure, hope and despair continue and repeats itself uh, a few times, if not many times, then you're likely going to be driven to despair. You're likely going to give up hope. You're probably going to say to yourself, I put my hope in this, and I put my hope in that, and it all failed. Every part of it failed. So I give up. I don't have the strength to keep hoping when all my hopes keep getting dashed to pieces. Dear friends, if this is even slightly close to your life experiences, then let me encourage you to do some soul searching. If the hardships, frustrations, failures, and disappointments of your life have brought you to the point of despair, then ask yourself who or what you've been putting your hope in. Have you been hoping in yourself? Have you been hoping in your skills, in your intellect, in your ability to make things happen? Have you been hoping in another person? Have you been hoping your parents would set you up in life? Have you been hoping that your spouse would fulfill all your needs? Have you been hoping your children would be there to care for you in your elderly years? Have you been hoping in an institution? Have you been hoping that the university diploma would open all the doors of life for you? Have you been hoping that marriage would be the solution to all your problems? Have you been hoping that your preferred political party would remedy all the problems in society? Have you been hoping in material wealth? Did you hope that a larger paycheck would make you respectable in the eyes of your spouse and peers? Did you hope that a better house would bring you contentment? Did you hope your retirement account will give you the security that you're longing for? Brothers and sisters, despair is a decision. It's the decision to give up hope. But when your hope is, and when your hope is in anything other than God, you put yourself on the path to despair. 
but when your hope is exclusively in the God of your salvation, then you have no reason to despair. Why not? Because God is faithful. He has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. He's always there for you, walking with you through the fiery, fiery trials of life, walking with you through the deep valleys of life. And his promise is that he's working all things together for your good. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, he so preserves you that without the will of your heavenly father, not a hair can fall from your head and all things must work together for the good of your salvation. Consider the testimony of the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul describes some of the significant trials and hardships that they encountered on their missionary journey. And he says that they were hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. They were persecuted, but not forsaken. They were struck down, but not destroyed. Perplexed, but not in despair perplexed, but not in despair. In other words, Paul and his missionary companions didn't give up hope because their hope was established in the faithful person and character of the triune God. And this is why Paul could write with such confidence at the end of Romans 8, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, brothers and sisters, is the attitude of a person whose only hope is in the God of his salvation. That's the attitude of a Christian who will have many apologetic opportunities. And so it is with you as well and me. If you are firmly convinced that nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord, then you will be able to rejoice in the God of your salvation, even in the midst of suffering. You will be able to experience joy in the midst of hardships. You will sing praises to God, even when the world around you is collapsing. This is why people will ask you for the reason, uh, for the hope that's in you. Uh, they're, they're thinking that joy and happiness depend upon favorable circumstances. They're thinking that the only time a person can really rejoice is when things are going well. But then they see you rejoicing when things are not going well. They see you experiencing hardships, frustrations, failures, and disappointments, and they wonder, how can this be? that this person has joy. So they ask, what's your secret? How is it that you're joyful right now? How is it that you still have hope? Why aren't you in despair? This is your apologetic opportunity. This is what 1 Peter 3.15 is saying, you always need to be ready to explain. You always need to be ready for that question to give a, an apologetic when somebody asks you that question. So you explain that your only comfort in life and death is knowing that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And you explain that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to, with the glory that shall be revealed to the children of God. And you explain that in the perspective of eternity, which is your perspective, your afflictions are lightened but a moment, 
because God is working for his children a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And you explain that you are able to rejoice and be exceedingly glad in the midst of hardship because you know that your reward in heaven is great and it's preserved there for you by Christ Jesus. I'm not suggesting that this is easy, brothers and sisters. Don't hear me saying that you just need to flip a switch in your brain and then your hope will be exclusively in the God of your salvation and everything's going to line up just perfectly well for you. That's not what I'm saying. This is a process. To get to where Habakkuk is, to get where Paul is, is a process. It's the process of sanctification. It's the process through which the Spirit of God brings correction to your perception of God's work in this world, just like he did with Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk asked his questions and then said, I will be corrected. This sanctification is a process of correction of thinking. The core message of the book of Habakkuk is that the just shall live by faith and the wicked will perish in their sins. That's the core message. When Habakkuk expressed his concern that Judah would be destroyed by the Babylonians, God reminded him that the just shall live by faith. And when Habakkuk expressed his concern that the wicked Babylonians will escape justice, God reminded him that the wicked will perish in their sins. And you'll notice that these two truths make up the bulk of Habakkuk's prayer in chapter three. Repetitively, Habakkuk recalls the history of God bringing destruction on the wicked and redemption to his covenant people in this prayer. In verses 3 through 16, you'll see references to the plagues and judgment that God brought upon the Egyptians. And you'll see references to God delivering the Israelites safely out of Egypt. Habakkuk recalls how God made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. He remembers how the mighty hand of the Lord led his covenant people through the wilderness. And Habakkuk recounts how the Lord gave Joshua and Gideon victory over their enemies. What this teaches us, brothers and sisters, what this teaches us is that we need to have a robust knowledge of the history of God's work. We need to know how he has faithfully and consistently brought destruction upon the wicked and how he has faithfully and consistently brought redemption to his covenant people. We need to know these things because when we see how God has worked faithfully in the past, it gives us hope and assurance that God will work faithfully in the present as well as the future. And you can see that this is how it worked for Habakkuk. In chapters one and two, he was concerned about what the Lord was doing in the present and future. But when the Lord explained how he is working and about to work, Habakkuk made the connection between the past, present, and future. Um, he, Habakkuk essentially said, but of course, but of course, just as uh, the, the, the just have always lived by faith, uh, the wicked have always perished in their sins. I see this very clearly when I look at how God has worked in the past. And so I can have confidence that this is how God's going to work in the present as well as the future. And likewise, brothers and sisters, when you and I have a robust robust knowledge of the Lord's work of justice and redemption in the past, then we can have the same confidence that Habakkuk had concerning the present and the future. 
You can see how the wicked perished in their sins in the past, and so you can know that the wicked will perish in their sins in the present as well as the future. You can see how the just have lived by faith in the past, and so you can know that the just shall live by faith in the present and the future. And you can see how, the, how God, the Lord, has always been faithful to his character in the past. And so you can know that he will always be faithful to his character in the present as well as the future. And you can see how he has always brought good out of evil for his people in the past. And so you can know that he will bring good out of evil for his people in the present as well as the future. When you have a robust knowledge of God's faithful work in the past, then you can say, along with Habakkuk, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known. And you will also be able to say, along with Habakkuk, that though the world is collapsing and crumbling around you, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Amen. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.